loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Amy Turner. Amy was born in Bronxville, New York. She holds a degree in political science from Boston University and a Juris Doctor from New York Law School. After practicing law rather unhappily for 22 years, she finally found the courage to change careers at 48 and become a very happy seventh grade social studies teacher. A longtime meditator and avid reader who loves to swim and bike, Amy lives in East Hampton, New York with her husband, Ed, to whom she's been married for 40 years, and their rescue dog, Fred. Amy and Ed have two sons. On the Ledge is Amy's first book. Welcome, Amy. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to have you. And and of course, many people might think On the Ledge is a metaphor, but in, in the case of your life experience, it's a literal reference. Could you start just by sharing with the, the listeners uh, your, er, your early exposure to uh, On the Ledge? Yes, certainly. Well, the um, my exposure to it, I didn't know about it at the time, but when my father uh, was on a business trip to New Haven, Connecticut in 1957, I was four and a half, and he stepped out onto the ledge of his hotel room and threatened to jump. He was there for 20 minutes, and... Uh, until a priest, a passerby priest, came up to his room and talked to him and eventually convinced him to come inside. And that's how my memoir opens. Maybe actually we should just have you read that very beginning part because I think it captures where you go in the book from there, both both in terms of your father and in terms of your mother. Uh, I'd be delighted to. This is from the prologue, page one. On a cold November morning in 1957, as Yale students crossed the green to their first classes, hotel employees cleaned up breakfast dishes and three priests went out for a walk. My father, pajama clad and barefoot, climbed out on the ledge of his hotel window and threatened to jump. Some 50 feet below, the fire truck arrived. Three firemen cranked the extension ladder to the floor below him while others tried to gauge a jump's trajectory and positioned a circular neck. Those in the growing crowd craned their necks to take in every moment of the unfolding drama. Soon hundreds of people were staring up at him. My mother at home in Bronxville, New York, had awakened with an uneasy feeling, a low rumbling in her head, perhaps. She called my father's hotel room. When he didn't answer, she might have pictured him standing on the front porch of our house again, a fresh blood stain on the front of his shirt. The injury had been superficial, from a penknife, it turned out, but having been self-inflicted, it was hard to forget. It's possible that she thought about pouring a scotch, but maybe the effect of last night's half bottle, or the memory of my father's confident smile as he boarded the train to New Haven that morning, reassured her. 
that just so sets the stage for the whole book in terms of your parents and their separate ways of dealing with misery, basically, and quite different ways of dealing with misery. And then the way that that gets into our psyche so early on, and we, we draw our own conclusions based on who we naturally are, but, um, but that kind of became a centerpiece for you, didn't it? Uh, it absolutely did. I didn't find out about the event until I was 16, but as your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, maybe have had this experience, children somehow know what's going on. They may not know the actual facts, but they sense the, uh, the emotion, the subtext, the, the fears and the anxieties that exist in the house or in their parents. So I knew that something uh, was wrong, and I grew up with what, with a lot, we would say anxiety now, but back then it was always worry, worrying. Um, eventually, my mother was also always cautioning us, you know, not to get that upset. Don't, don't get him angry. Don't, don't be too loud. I didn't know why, but it was more than just, you know, quiet kids. I knew I had this sense that the consequences involved some kind of life and death, you know, that it was very mm-hmm. serious. So I woke, I, I uh, grew up with that hypervigilance and sense that at any time, you know, a, a parent could disappear and I wouldn't know, you know, why and it would be unpredictable. So it did have a, a really, a huge impact on my upbringing and the, the fear and vulnerability I felt as a child. And then when I found out uh, at 16, it all made sense. Uh, but in a way, the um, injury or the damage to my psyche, or we should say the pattern was totally ingrained. And that's very hard to change. And in my case, took me a lifetime uh, to unpeel the layers of that or undo that pattern. Absolutely. I'm thinking of a, of a saying I was exposed to decades ago that stuck, which, which is, Children are wonderful absorbers and terrible interpreters. So <laughs> you felt the danger, but you interpreted that as something you had to do something about, right? <laughs> you know, you sort of picked it all up and put it on your own shoulders when actually you didn't have any power over what was happening, uh, really. Yeah. Right. I mean, it really is when you think of what children carry, what they think they're capable of controlling or influencing. It, it may have had something to do with my mother's constant warnings. So it felt like something I did could have impact. But of course, my behavior had uh, nothing to do with it. But it did uh, make me, it just kind of invaded my subconscious that if I had the um, power to, at the time I didn't know, to have him, you know, climb onto a ledge, or if I had the power to upset him and have something terrible happen, then maybe I also had the power to prevent it from happening, to protect him. And so that's, I think a lot of children grow up with that, especially, you know, in households maybe where there's an adult alcoholic too. Um, 
And that feels like a lot of responsibility. It reminds me of something that over the time of my my wife's illness, which was almost a decade, became ever and ever more important to me, which was saying what was happening to my children, acknowledging it, saying it out loud, <laughs> whatever it was, say it out loud and, and make sure and communicate, you know, this, this isn't your fault nor your responsibility. Um, but I think for my generation, which is the same as yours, our parents didn't necessarily have that as a principle. Uh, no, absolutely not. I, I think there was a, the feeling of protecting your children. Don't tell them. Don't upset them. Not there was a lack of awareness that children, as you said, they, you know, they um, will inter. They may not understand the facts, but they'll interpret them in a way that makes sense to them. So, so just. Uh, it, they're not really, uh, you're not protecting them or shielding them from anything. Um, I think, you know, for it to happen now, and I mean, I was four and a half, so you're not going to explain exactly what's going on to a four and a half year old. But I do think parents can go a long way to um, alleviate the fear and the feeling of uncertainty, vulnerability, if they had been reassuring me that you know, we were all safe and my parents were in control of the situation and which maybe me. they didn't actually feel and yes you raise a very good point because to um put it in context my mother as i mentioned in the prologue was an active alcoholic at the time and i, I give her all credit six weeks later well, my father, uh, you know, climbed out on the ledge. He was hospitalized, you know, in a mental hospital for close to a year. But about six weeks after he was hospitalized, she went to AA and ha she had her last drink and went to AA and managed to stay, stay sober until she passed away, you know, 40 years later. But that effort to stay to keep herself under control, to keep herself from drinking, to hold on to her sobriety, really, I'm sure, took all of her energy. And um, so thinking about how to best deal with it or to uh, share it with her children, uh, she was just, the fact that she was able to somehow get sober and keep that sobriety, I think, was basically all the capacity she had. Um, I should mention I had two younger brothers. Um, we were born within three years of each other and a sister uh, five years older. So she had her hands full even under the best of circumstances. And also that sort of pre-shadows pre um, the sense you, you gave me of your mother in the book, which, which is that her solution to everything was to take an action. That, that in contrast to your father, who was kind of deep diving in some ways, she was just, just move on, just move forward, just do the next thing. <laughs> so maybe yeah. she was naturally inclined towards that to begin with. Well, I, th I think she was. Um, I think it was also something she held on to in terms of you know, AA and the principles for her. And I think it was, it was the, 
protection um, method of protection for herself because if you just take action and you don't as she would say, you know, wallow in your feelings, you might be less likely to uh, pick up a drink. For her, self-pity was something she was always very afraid of, that that might lead her to drink. So, you know, it says, as if every dive into feelings is self-pity, which, of course, I would disagree with that, being a therapist and all. <laughs> but I think you would disagree, too. You can dive into your feelings and... and um have insight about your experience without, you know, a sort of wallowing in self-pity. Uh, absolutely. And um, I think she, as she uh, aged, she eventually uh, understood, I think, the importance of discussing feelings and at least acknowledging them. Mm. But she, it was really difficult for her. I think all of her children um, knew early on that we needed to find a way to express ourselves, express our feeling. And, you know, a lot of we ended up in therapy so that we could talk about them because she certainly wasn't uh, wasn't one who would listen. And my father would, of course, he understood um emotions and so forth but it was also fraught for him and fraught for us because if he got too upset he might he would become depressed and and when i grew up he suffered a series of depressions and there was always the underlying fear that it he might have suicidal thoughts so the There's an irony there, right? She was emotionally perhaps stronger, but more averse to hearing how you felt. But if you shared it with him, then you had to worry that you were somehow uh, touching off his fragility? Yes. Yeah, you you really um, made a very good point. That's exactly right. And there was sort of no middle ground, no for us, you know, we didn't grow up perceiving that there was this healthy middle ground for sharing, you know, expressing emotion and discussing them. So really, even as a parent, I realized that was a fraught area for me because I had these two polar opposites and I had to find that healthy middle um, for my children. And also watch out for the, you know, I noticed... So I have the idea about parenting. Pick your mistake, right? <laughs> You're going to make one. Which one? <laughs> but sometimes when when something has been extreme in one way, we just want to do the exact opposite. And I appreciate that you're saying I had to find a way to sort of incorporate the qualities in a way that was more healthy or, or got me further. Yes? Yes, uh, ab- absolutely. And I certainly um, needed some therapy to help me do, help me learn what was the healthy way to do that since it really hadn't been modeled for me. I have the feeling we probably share how that came out in my life is this um, talking about things, you know, open communication, but my children didn't always actually want to go along with that. One in particular was really fed up by it <laughs> and still 
and still, you know, hold up, mom, that's enough kind of thing. So whatever it is, ironically, uh, leads to a result we don't anticipate, doesn't it? I don't know why I'm just tempted. I don't think he'll be listening, at least, uh, at least not right this moment, maybe the recording, but I am reminded of my son, my younger son, when he was a teenager, he must have been trying to, you know, broach a difficult topic and and I was clearly nervous about it and probably nervous about, am I crossing a line and, you know, asking for too much or sharing too much? And he just looks at me and he goes, you've got to do something about your anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Out of the mouths of not any longer babes, huh? <laughs> well, I didn't say it. <laughs> But I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. I think I'm going to slink away from the table. So I guess the, the moral of that story for me is my, you know, therapy helped and my uh, children were also good teachers <laughs> as I stumbled through it. Yeah, I, I feel sometimes if uh, with people that haven't parented, they don't exactly get what this idea might my children are my biggest teachers, what that actually means, which is exactly what we're talking about. You know, um, kids bring you up short. And if you want to be a good parent, you kind of look at yourself in some way. Uh, right. At least that's how I've experienced it. Yeah. I mean, me for me too, and people who don't have children have other avenues for uh, having growth triggered. But for me, you know, parenting was... Uh, one thing, uh, uh, discovering one area after another where I needed to work through my own issues so that I could be you know, present as a parent and not just kind of a product of my past. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Hope I did well enough, you know. You know, it's almost time for a break, but when we get back, this is what I'd like to talk about. Um, I have the idea that we we interact with our internal dynamics over a lifetime and what we're ready to do at different times uh, changes, right? Um, and of course, there was a quite profound event in your life that brought uh, another level of growth uh, on subjects you'd already been to therapy about, you'd learned from your kids about, all of the rest. Um, I want to talk with you about whether you agree with what I just said and, and how that's shown itself in your own life in the ways that you still change and grow in response to what's gone on in your life. Uh, so right. let's, let's talk about that when we get back. Great. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Uh, to find Amy Turner, you can go to amyturnerauthor.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. 
Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine Miller-Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Amy Turner about her book, On the Ledge. And before the break, Amy, I was saying I really want to talk about this uh, idea that that is, well, beyond an idea and experience for me that I keep growing and changing and my clients keep growing and changing in response to the same dynamics over a lifetime. Uh, sometimes there are very dramatic changes in relationship to that, but it doesn't go away. You know, we're, we're always interacting with our experiences and, and inclinations, I guess. Um, but you wrote this book because a, a quite dramatic event pushed you to another level of grappling with all this. Would you, um, would you talk about that? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, I agree, and I think, as I probably mentioned before the break, I'd had a fair amount of therapy during my life to try to process, you know, what had happened to my father, just the dysfunctional climate in which I grew up. And I really felt I, I'd done a lot of work, and, you know, I'd done a lot of crying, and I was at the point where I could certainly talk about this, all the events from my childhood and all of that without triggering a you know an overwhelming emotion or somehow being um, too hampered by it. At least I thought. And so I was um, fifty-seven, and I really thought I'd, I'd gotten as far as I could in terms of dealing with these issues. Although in the back of my mind, I knew there might be some 
areas that I needed to work on, but I really thought I was just going to live with that. So on a routine Saturday in July in East Hampton, I'm on the eastern end of Long Island, I picked up my our dry cleaning uh, bag, a dry clean clothes, plastic bag, and uh, stepped into a pedestrian crosswalk with a sign saying stop for pedestrians. And I'll describe what happened. Of course, it was within seconds, but things slow down. Um, you know, something very dramatic. Time seems to slow down. But a blue pickup truck was pulling out of a dead-end street across from me and making a left-hand turn toward me. And I could see the windshield I, right at me. I'm looking directly into it. I figured, my God, the driver has to see me. I mean, it's six feet away. And all of a sudden, he accelerated and hit me. I, I you know, experienced, I knew my head had, you know, crashed on the pavement and I'd had a sensation of moving, but I wasn't sure what was going on. And I, but it turns out he what dragged me for um, 20 feet or so. And I was under, under the truck. So uh, it was, to say the least, you know, traumatic and <laughs> frightening, and just, uh, you know, absolutely shocking. Uh, so at the same time, I was doing everything I could to try to escape where I was. So I was even kind of cracking jokes to myself, if you can believe it, because a bag of dry cleaning was on top of my face underneath the truck. And when I started to breathe, the plastic went in my mouth and I just thought, oh my God, I just got hit by a truck, but I'm going to die suffocating on my dry cleaning. And I just thought, you know, my God, this is so bizarre. But uh, they pulled the truck off me and I then miraculously, some really had no broken bones or internal injuries, but I had a concussion like dizziness and, you know, bruises and cuts and all of that and uh, kind of work I needed to get my body back in line, shoulder problems. And I embark on a course of going to doctors and I end up in the office of an acupuncturist who is also studying somatic uh, techniques or modalities for releasing trauma. I mean, just serendipitously, she wasn't doing that when I first went to see her. Mm. And I found that over the course of the acupuncture and the different treatments, I I experienced, as you said, you know, over time it changes. I realized that I had never until my recovery from the truck and a particular incident in her office had never truly experienced the vulnerability I had felt as a four and a half year old when my father suddenly disappeared. And it wasn't until I had my own to that experience of vulnerability facing the truck that then comes to, you know, hits me head on that somehow I was able to go back and experience what it was like for me as a child. And until the truck experience, I, I think it was simply 
way too frightening, uh, too dangerous, too threatening for me to experience that level of vulnerability. But gosh, you know, you stare at a truck that hits you. You can't deny you are vulnerable. <laughs> it's pretty hard. I, I find this, I work with cancer a lot and, um, and of course, lived with someone with cancer for a long time. It's sort of like, okay, the worst has happened. Now what is the way I, I sometimes describe it, you know, may, may as well, you know, dive into whatever it is because um, I'm surviving this terrible thing. I'll probably survive it is how I've thought about it sometimes. You know, um, and I think probably, um, and this may have had something to do with the writing, uh, but there are other reasons as well. You know, it was done. It happened, as you say, you know, and I survived it, like, you know, surviving cancer. And it, that now what? Like, oh, my God, this random shocking event. It just simply... I need to understand this. I, it just mm, yeah. made no sense to me. I just, you know, how could it? There's one car on the road. I'm staring at the driver. It just, um, so uh, I think the really uncovering the vulnerability was probably very gradual uh, in terms of during my recovery, as I was getting more comfortable with facing the vulnerability of the truck. Oh, I, I should sort of, backtrack for a minute. For a long time, I just dismissed my vulnerability. And I kept telling people it was no big deal, you know, and I'd give them the laugh line about suffocating on the dry cleaning and would dismiss it with humor and jokes because I didn't want to face it. And, when and, I find and you, that dismisses them too, right? They can't, they can't say, oh my God, after you say that. <laughs> so maybe that's Absolutely. part of it too. <laughs> I get, get them laughing and then they'd say, Oh, I'm so sorry. You had a, you know, trauma and I'm laughing. And I'd say, no, no, I want you, you know, I wanted them. Um, I wanted them to laugh so that I didn't have to really feel acknowledge that I was totally weak and vulnerable. And, you know, in my family, um, of course, that's how my, I felt as a four and a half year old. I'm sure how my father felt as he was uh, standing on the ledge. And the one feeling that my mother just would not allow herself, she were vulnerable, she'd drink, um, or, or want to see in any of her kids or her husband. So um, I'd yes. love for you to read the, the um, passage in your book right after the accident happened. Um, because one thing that stunned me about it, Amy, is that you remembered all the details. I have a friend who was recently in a skydiving accident. She remembers nothing. Ooh. It's it's a complete blank. People have had to tell her what happened, right? Um, obviously, more serious injuries, etc. But still, it is quite unusual to have such a vivid recollection of a traumatic uh, event like that. Yes, and I, I don't know what the explanation for that is, except that maybe, you know, the part of my brain that really got smashed wasn't wasn't too close to memory. But I, I do know that um, the next day, I, I was so afraid 
and this is really kind of illogical, but for some reason I thought it was so strange to me that, you know, I was actually home, that my brains hadn't been splattered on the, on the side, on the street, that I thought, well, something more is going to come and, and maybe the brain damage is going to show up in a week or a day or a month. So I better write down the facts of what happened because mm. not remember them ever. So the next day, even though I could barely write, I, and I think it was the lawyer in me somehow, but just <laughs> uh-huh. write down those facts because you never know what's going to happen. So I think that helped, um, you know, when a couple of years later I was going back to write about it. Um, and uh, so would you like me to read that? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Because so much stands out that I'd like to ask you about in it. So I'd love for you to share it. Okay. So the, um, as I said, the plastic was on my, on my head, you know, in my mouth. Uh, So this is uh, pages nine and 10. My brain begged my arms to remove the plastic, but they just lay there unresponsive. My legs wouldn't move either. Paralyzed, I gasped reflexively. Stupid idea. It only sucked the plastic deeper into my throat. Stop panicking, I yelled at myself. You'll choke even more. Think of something. I tried to force the plastic out with a cough, but it was too far down. The pressure in my head was getting unbearable. I was going to drown. Suddenly, fingers were rubbing the roof of my mouth, and in a second, I could breathe. With the air came sounds and sight, and within me, a flood of love and gratitude. A car door slammed. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I looked up. Through a foggy haze, I saw a tall, slim young man with blonde hair. Was it my son, Matt? Don't worry, I'm alive. I'm alive. I'll be okay, I told him. I wanted to hug him and let him know that I forgave him for this accident, forgave him for everything, that all that matters in this world is how we love, and I loved him no matter what. I could move my arms now, but a hug meant getting up. So instead, I reached for whatever I could, touched the outside of his calf, it turned out, and patted it. As I looked up at him, the picture cleared a little. I was forgiving a stranger. A cop appeared next to him. We're going to get the truck off you. Don't move because your foot is touching the tire. I couldn't move, so I was sure this wouldn't be a problem, but the thought scared me even more than I already was. Desperate to find a joke that might distract me, I said, Okay, as long as you don't let the driver do it. So the thing that really stuck with me after I read that was this this idea of saying, I'm okay, I'm okay. I, I so resonated with this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were going to a show in San Francisco across the bay from where I live. And we were rushing, we were late because there had been traffic. And I caught the curb and went down. I actually wasn't seriously hurt at all. I wasn't, you know, I skinned up my knees and stuff. But my first impulse was, I'm okay. Like, don't worry about me, (laughs) you know, which is ridiculous, isn't it? Of course, people should worry about you when something like that happens and check in and make sure you're all right. But I I have a, a similar reflex, I'm okay. But in your circumstance, of course, you couldn't even have known if you were okay yet. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that that feeling of being okay and refusing to 
recognize that I'd suffered a trauma and all of that afterwards really goes back to kind of what we were talking about before. When you, when you grow up between two polar opposites, on the one hand, my mother, you know, you're strong, take action and all of this. And my father, oh my gosh, ha have too much feeling and you end up in a mental hospital. So for me, it was just, you know, I'm okay because if I'm not okay, I might end up in a mental hospital or something worse. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any No in-betweens. Yes, no in-betweens where, yeah, you can be hurt and then you can recover. And that's what doctors are for. But um, so, yes, and I really, I lay there and the EMTs came and, I, you know, it's very lucky that they came right away and so forth. And I was helicoptered to a hospital. And, um, but the whole time I really did, uh, I wanted to dismiss, you know, that anything, uh, anything was wrong with me. And I just tried to find every joke I could find to pretend, to make it seem like I was okay. Cause was they were, that was that a technique used in your family, humor as a way to distance yourself? Because that's where most comedy comes from, I think. You yes. know, painful things that you make a joke about. Was that a kind of a family tradition or something that was particular to you? Well, I think both my parents had a different but good senses of humor, but I didn't see them as using it necessarily as a defense mechanism. I think my siblings are really funny, uh, my three siblings. And I think we all developed it sort of as a, as a tribe. You know, the four of us would get together, or the three of us, and, and laugh um, just to kind of relieve the tension. So I think it was something that uh, my siblings and I came up with. And I think, frankly, it... Um, the older I got, the more I relied on it, which is a little mm. interesting. Um, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, of course, you, you had a one-two punch because your brother died not long after that accident. And I was imagining that that sort of really threw you deeper into investigation because that seemed to me so related to what happened in your family and how that affected each of you differently. But I'd love to talk a little more about, uh, since we're talking already about your sibling ways of trying to cope together, um, how that impacted this exploration you, you dove into. So let's talk about that when we get back. And sure. listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief host page to find out everything about me and to find Amy Turner. Go to amyturnerauthor.com. Back soon. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page 
or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America. America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Amy Turner about her memoir, On the Ledge, and Amy, two two short months which probably blurred by given that you were you know recovering from a concussion at the time um your brother died and i would consider that also a trauma would you put it in that category uh yes absolutely especially because um he you know like my mother i think he got the alcoholic gene and unfortunately and uh had had a troubled adulthood but for the last three years he'd been doing better than he'd been doing in decades and I finally wasn't worried about him and then he just suddenly you know dies of uh, natural causes so it was an absolute shock he he was 13 months younger than I was so at the time when he died I I actually it felt almost physical Mm -hmm. um made me appreciate how attached you know, we've been, I've been to him since I was 13 months old. And um, so when that happened, again, a random shocking event after my accident, I just felt like I was being propelled somewhere <laughs> to, yeah. to deeper, to try to figure out really what was happening. To, or to make meaning of it. And um, in a sense, it was my the grief over my uh, brother that led me to write the memoir because about a year later when we had a memorial or our favorite teacher showed up as a surprise, it was unbeknownst to me and it was a, a beautiful tribute to my brother 
and I was writing her a thank you note. And somehow that expression of grief and appreciation around my brother opened up a channel that for me, I had not had access to ever and always wanted to. And that there was creative flow just came out of me and I was able to write. And soon I was beyond the bounds of a thank you note, sent off the thank you note, and then sat down to write more and eventually realized that I was actually writing something. And so I do feel, though, although I wish my brother were alive today, um, the grief over his loss had this gift for me. Well, that's sort of the heart of this show, isn't it? That that um, there's loss and there's grief, and that's just the truth, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what optionally happens, but happens in a large number of, of occasions, is that it that we choose to grow as a result instead of just stay in the thick of the negative feeling. And what's interesting to me as a grief counselor is that you were kind of stuck not touching those early losses. And I'll, I'll tell you truthfully, as long as I have a sense of motion, I don't worry about grief, mm. but it's those places that get sort of lodged and they don't move that don't go anywhere. And that loss in your life, the two, the accident and your brother's death dislodged you, didn't it? Uh, yes. You know, that's a really uh, great observation. It, it absolutely did. It was sort of, uh, you know, if I was st- stuck sitting on a bench and not getting up, somehow the bench was overturned and I had no choice. I was moving. So um, those events really did propel me along this journey that I thought I'd finished. I really thought I was done. Mm. I did much work as I could possibly do. And these two events really uh, pushed me to do more. And I am so grateful, really, it felt serendipitously ended up in the care of someone who uh, was training in the field of recovery from trauma. And it was uh, a great help to get down to these deeper layers that I had never been able to access and, and didn't really know still needed uncovering. Um, and eventually I did learn, you know, just how stuck I, I was. And I saw that in fact, I was stuck on that ledge with my father that I had never really come to terms with that had not gained any distance from it. And as you say, stuck, I was really stuck there with him. And my regardless, regardless of the fact that both of your parents lived to be quite old, right? (laughs) But, but that's not the, the issue is whether they lived, it was whether you moved. Right, exactly. I mean, it is amazing. They both lived, uh, my mother 77 my father into his 90s but that that developmental trauma experience those experiences 
that we have as a young, young child, they just get lodged. I mean, I, as you say, I think stuck in my nervous system and it took the truck accident, my brother's death to finally dislodge it so that I could see it. Mm. It created some distance, some space so that I could actually see what it was and release it. And I will also say it's a lifetime of work because it's not like I don't get triggered here and there about vulnerability and fear of it and so forth. But I certainly see it with more distance, with more understanding and with less sort of immediate um, activation. Hmm. Let's circle back around to the beginning and, and have you read that little section about your family home, which, you know, we, we never know what's going on behind the doors of a home, do we? Um, it can look like everything is, and I would apply this to my childhood too, it, everything seemed to be okay. And in some ways that was true, and in other ways, of course, it wasn't because we're, childhood's hard for one thing, but um, we carry the traumas of our parents. Can you read that little piece about that home? Yes, I'd love to. It's on page 25. As a child, I loved our family's house at 35 Valley Road. Its turret, whose roof resembled a Chinese peasant's hat, the attic room, the site of my sister and her friends, I Hate Boys Club, whose seven half windows offered a perfect place to look out for said boys. My bedroom's fireplace, which I longed for Santa to use one Christmas Eve. The sunlit playroom, whose large windows created the impression you were playing outside. And the breakfast room's small cast iron potbelly stove, which dating back to the house's construction in 1896, was a perpetual reminder that other children had lived there as well. But despite our house's considerable size, its playful character was often overshadowed by my parents' emotional states, the vibrations of my mother's anger and the damp of my father's depressions could permeate its every corner and consume me as well. Although I didn't hold the house responsible, at times I would sense its hidden dangers, those invisible trapdoors through which my parents might suddenly at any time disappear. You know, we could call that uh, kind of a, a premature insight. Uh, ch- children at certain ages are not particularly ready to accommodate the fact that that's literally true all the time of everybody. <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't know that most adults are ready to reckon with that, but you viscerally did. You you felt in some completely deep place that you were at risk of of loss of those people who were responsible for you yeah yes and you know in in doing this work after the accident and kind of going deeper and having deeper things come up i realized you know i i hadn't made the connection to my mother as much until uh, the recovery from the accident and this trauma work because I realized that it was not just 
that feeling that my father could disappear. It was the knowing on some level that my mother might not be in any condition to come save me. And I hadn't quite felt that before until after the accident. I was doing that work and I thought, oh my God, that is why the vulnerability was so intense hmm. because there's no sense of safety. Uh, I'd always focused on my father, but my mother too, uh, at least the first you know five or so years of my life was actively drinking. So I knew I must have known on some level she was not reliable. Well, uh, also it occurs to me that um, when when I watch my uh, grandchildren, I, I was too close to my kids to to witness this in quite the same way. But when I watch them in their vulnerability in some way, and what happens when people are too busy to stop and be with them with it, and what happens when they're able, you know, when when one of the parents stoops down and, and connects, um, if to a great degree your mother was not willing to do that, that was an abandonment period right then, wasn't it? Uh, yes, yes, I'm sure, I'm sure I knew that, um, whatever happened, I mean, probably, well, let me just think about that. Uh, yes. And, and actually I think when a parent does that, the child eventually, or I think I did as an adult, you start to override your own feelings Mm -hmm. because it's not recognizing, you know, kneeling down and saying, oh, you've had a, you know, hurt or something. Something seems to be going on with you. Tell me more. Well, <laughs> you think, well, that feeling's not important or I wasn't really hurt. I should ignore it the way your parent ignored it. And um, I mean, that is one thing it took me decades and finally through this work and I'm still working on it I catch myself all the time trying to override feelings and um, I know for my health um, you know not just psychological health but also physical health that that overriding is really uh, dangerous in a, in a uh, away if your body's telling you it's time to rest and stop and something's going on and you override it constantly uh, eventually it's going to force you to stop well you know i think you and i can share as we close out for the day um, that it's so optimistic the ways in which we can continue to grow in relationship to our experiences i i i want to say one word about your husband who was there through this whole thing the memoir was not about him but i was so aware of him so <laughs> thanks to ed <laughs> and i really appreciated our conversation today thanks so much for being with me oh it's really been so interesting i really appreciate it thanks so much I hope people will go find the book. It's it's a really captivating read. It's um, I, I love memoir, you know, but also um, the way that you describe this process is is just very fascinating. So I hope people will go look 
for the book at amyturnerauthor.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.